0: God, we thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ephesians and what an encouraging text this is. Um, I thank you for the people in this room and their desire to understand your word better and to just sit under the teaching of scripture. And I ask that as we look at your word, it wouldn't be merely something that engages our minds, but that it would engage our hearts and increase our love for you and so just guide and direct our conversation this morning in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, we're just going to be looking at verses 11 through 14. Well, that, that's a little bit misleading. Our text from Ephesians is verses 11 through 14, but we're going to end up in a few other places as well. Is there somebody who would be willing to um, read this for us, nice and loud, for the audio recording?
1: 11 through 15?
0: Uh, Just 11 through 14 of chapter 1.
2: In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will
0: Are there enough seats here? Maybe we need to pull a few more down. Grab a couple Got it? All right. Thank you. I one Thank you. Okay. So the first thing I want to take a look at is Paul uses this phrase, in him, quite often um, here in Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible open, take a look at verse uh, 4. It says that God chose us in him. Who's it referring to? Christ, right? Jesus. So we've been chosen in him um, before the foundation of the world, verse 4. Then look down at verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then we've got it in verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. And then here in verse 11 and again in verse 13, right? In Him, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. And then verse 13, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth. So what does it mean? You can add
3: uh, three more. If you go to the end of verse 6, then verse 2, or in the end of Messiah. If you add the end of Messiah and the
0: end of Beloved, which are we'll the same. Sure. Yeah. Three more. There you go. Thank you for pointing that out, absolutely. So what does it mean for, um, well, let's let's do it this way. Let's make a list. Why don't we look at these different verses? What are the things that you, so, so we're asking the question, what does it mean to be in him? What does it mean to be in Christ? So look through here, and I'll put these up on the the, the board here. Take a look at verse four, take a look at verse six, verse seven, verse 10. What Less. Bless. Love it. What else? Chosen. Redeemed.
3: Redeemed. Favored.
1: Blameless.
0: That's good.
3: Is that
0: right? Yes, right? Together united. Um. Verse thirteen. Sometimes you have to. Paul, Paul does these things where he begins with like an idea and then he's got these long kind of parenthetical statements, and then he finishes the idea. Sealed. Sealed. That's the one I was looking for. What were you going to say, Luca? Okay, I'm going to count that with redeemed. That's a good one, but it's similar. It's a a simile of redeemed. Um, Man, this is... This is powerful. This is beautiful. Like when we say that we're in Christ, we're summarizing a lot of rich theology in that phrase. And Paul here, especially in these first 14 verses, is drawing out all the different implications of that. Don do we need any more chairs back there? Oh, no, no, no. you're sure? Okay. Thanks. Okay. So, we are in Christ. That's if you look at it from one perspective, but if you flip that around, what else is true? Christ is in us, right? And this is not some mystical, weird reality. This is actually a very concrete reality. So uh, I think particularly verse 13, when we get to like this, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, brings out some really powerful imagery. So where did the spirit of God dwell in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? In the temple. And it was a very concrete reality, wasn't it? I mean, if you go read those passages from uh, Kings and Chronicles, is it 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, where Solomon is dedicating the temple And uh, does anybody remember what happens? Yeah, the temple's filled with smoke, right? It talks about like the glory of the Lord descending. But there's even more than that. When that happens, how do the people respond? They fall down. They literally fall down. So this is a very concrete reality. So the Spirit of God once dwelt in a very tangible sense in the temple. Like, I don't know what that experience must have been like to walk in the temple with the spirit of God there, but I imagine you might've got like goosebumps. I don't. Maybe that's getting weird and mystical. I don't know, but what, have you ever, I mean, have you ever like had an experiential encounter with the Holy Spirit in a way that was kind of inexplicable? And again, I'm not talking like weird mysticism stuff. The Spirit is God, and the Spirit is a person. And um, so what would it have been like to walk in the temple? But where's, where does the Holy Spirit dwell now? The temple is destroyed. Where does the Spirit dwell? In the church. Yes, yeah, in the church, in the people of God, in us, right? And, you know, I don't think any one particular person... This is a difficult theological concept to draw out because um, God is omnipresent and he is infinite in his being. And so I like that you said the church because we live in a culture that's very kind of like self-centered and it's true to say the spirit dwells in you and there's a sense even in which we can say because God can't be divided. The totality of God dwells in you, and yet the church is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? The distinction that I'm trying to make here? Okay. We are living stones being built up in the spiritual temple. Exactly. Thank you for bringing that verse up. That's that's helpful. So, um, yeah, so now the Spirit of God brings this kind of wonderful blessing and reality to the people of God corporately and individually as the Spirit dwells in the people of God. So this is all part of what it means to be in Him. And and we can even go further than that. We can say that our life has become His life and His life has become our life. Um, Jesus says I'm the vine, you're the branches. Right? Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. So There's a sense in which that very lifeblood of that vine flows from Christ into us. And so his life is now being lived out in us. And so this should really cause us to think very deeply about the conduct of our life. Right? Uh, Maybe it's kind of a cliche question, but it's worth asking, like, would Jesus participate in the things that you participate in? Um, Would he be pleased? Right? Like, if he is in you and you are in him, the things that you're doing should cause you to ask the question, like, would this please Christ who is in me and in whom I am also in fellowship? Um, And maybe I've talked about this before, but I remember vividly an experience reading, I think it's, I think it, Jesus says it in John 16. It's in the Upper Room Discourse. So it's somewhere there in chapters 15 through 17. But Jesus says to his disciples, it is better for you that I go away. Um, because if I go, then the helper will come. And so, uh, you know, I remember this experience reading that th- Longing throughout middle school and high school to actually have Jesus present with me. Like, how rad would it be, you know, to sit down with Jesus, bodily present with you? And yet, Jesus says that unless he goes away, we won't get this wonderful gift of the Spirit that literally makes us in him, uh, intimately connected with him. And so, again, this should kind of cause us to ask the question like, why? Um, what prevents us from having a life that looks like Christ if this reality is true right? maybe another way of saying it is uh, is it a lack of resources is it a lack of God's desire no it would just be us not living it out does that make sense so um, this is just a beautiful reality that Christ is in us. And again, I don't want it. I want to move away from some mystical, weird thing. It's very tangible. It's very real. It's very concrete. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions on that?
1: I was just thinking that in the temple once I was in there, that it was even more separated than we were even saying because you did not even go to where he was. Of people go in there. It's really cool that he's in
0: us now because that's all Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. And I think we've talked about that at one point in adult Sunday school. Maybe it was a while ago. But the big, big message of the temple is really no access, right? Depending on who you were, you could get further and further into this thing where, like, the Holy of Holies was you know, where the spirit of God dwelt, but you had these different courts and it was like, you could only go so far. and eventually everybody had to stop. And one of the things that uh, I don't think people even realize about the curtain that, that was the veil is that uh, it was double layered with like a, like a six or eight inch um, space between the two curtains. So that even if you, you know, you can imagine a little five-year-old kid, like, what's behind the curtain, right? He runs over there and peeks back there. Well, what's right behind it? Another curtain, right? So the whole, the whole purpose of the temple, I mean, not the purpose, but one of the things that the temple communicates is, like, God's here, but not really. I mean, he's here, but you can't really get to it. So that's interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. And, of course, when Christ was crucified, the veil was torn. The gap between God and man was mended. The spirit comes and dwells in us. And therefore, in him, in Christ, all of these things become true. So in him, we've obtained an inheritance. And I think we've talked about that in different ways over the last couple of weeks. But this is some of what that inheritance looks like. We could add to it eternal life. Um... We actually, in a crazy way, get to participate in the glory of God himself, like he shares that with us as his people. There's tons more that we could say about the inheritance, Um, but in some ways even the inheritance remains veiled to us. We won't really fully comprehend it until we step into the new heaven and the new earth And we get to see it in all of its totality. And even then, I think it will be a process of further revelation because we'll have all eternity to understand what all those riches are. But in him we've uh, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Okay, so we see we're in Christ, and the inheritance of the riches of Christ are... uh, Ours, and they are ours precisely and only because we have been predestined. So this is, uh, I honestly don't know why this concept is controversial. I think because man just wants to have things his way. But uh, the truth is, those who are Christians are so because of what? End of verse 11. Say it again. His will. Right? Um, It is God's will that those who are believers would place their trust in Christ. Um, So let's talk for a couple minutes about uh, the two wills of God, which this might be controversial, but maybe not. Um, This is a, a... a subject that we encounter in Scripture, and to some degree we're talking about what I would call um, philosophical theology. Philosophical theology just means that we are reasoning to conclusions based on the teaching of Scripture. Okay, This is not the ideal way to do theology. Biblical theology is best, but the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us it tells us everything that we need to know, but there are some places where we have to reason to conclusions. Does that make sense? Okay, so Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Which, did anybody see this Jeopardy thing this week where they could? Unbelievable. I'm so mad that we could get that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um. Our Father in heaven, I, I, I like to say holy is your name because hallowed is an old word. But our Father in heaven, holy is your name. How, what, what comes next? Your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so uh, what can we infer from that prayer about God's will? Is God's will done on earth? No. It's no, it's
4: prayer. It
0: shouldn't You said no.
4: I mean the prayer kind of like telling us it's not done as it is in heaven. It is done, but not as it is in heaven. That's kind of like what we do and we want it to.
1: We pray for
0: it to Yeah, so this this is where we have to we have to have some discussion about like what is God's will, right? So Jesus is telling us that in heaven Everything is done according to the will of God, and why is that not the case on earth? Because there are two
4: different Because why? are two different
0: of God that is Well, what 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 have you done that is not according to God's will? We have a word for this: sin. Right? When you sin, you are. Denying the will of God, you're you're operating in disobedience to the will of God. Okay, so the life in the life to come, there will be no sin. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Um, but is there anything that happens on earth that is not according to God's will? Is is anything in creation outside of His sovereign control? No, no right. So this is where theologians have kind of reasoned to this idea that there are two wills in God, all right? And uh, the church has traditionally um, talked about this uh, to to just help us understand these kinds of things where Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, And God is not like us in this regard. You may lie to yourself and pretend that you have two wills. You don't. What is your will? Your will is whatever you do. Right, we tend to be like, oh, well, I told that lie, but like I didn't really want to do that, you know. I I sort of operated different than what I actually want to do, and that's just not true. You do exactly what you want, which is why you need so much spiritual rehabilitation, because your design, And I'm talking to you. I'm saying we, because our wills are so corrupt, right? We we execute the things that we want. We do what we want.
4: want
0: Yeah, because experientially that is how it feels, right? And we can desire for ourselves something greater than what we actually are, but you, you operate in what you want to do. And that's why Paul... That's where Paul goes with that passage where he's like, wretched man that I am. I recognize the problem. I want to do this thing, but I don't. What I do is what is true about me. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, So uh, this is why we need God to transform us because humans were created to have their wills lined up with God. When that happens, blessing and good flows from that. When our wills are unaligned with God, that's where you get the ruin of sin and death and everything terrible that has ever happened in human history. So we need to pray that God's will would be done in our lives just as it is done in heaven. But when we're talking about God's will... And there's different words for this, but we have what I would call God's perfect will or his revealed will. What is God's perfect will or his revealed will? So I would actually say that is his, I I use the word like permissive will. So I would actually say this is the other side. And look, uh, I'm not being very precise with these terms, um, but I I will explain them. God's perfect will is uh, what he has outlined for us in scripture. It is what is done in heaven that, that should be done on earth. Okay. It is revealed to us. What does God want for, let's just say, your marriage, since I'm teaching on that today? Well, he wants it to look like what scripture says. What does he want for your thought life? Well, he wants it to look like this, right? What does he want for the kind of fruit that comes out of your actions? It's all revealed right here, okay? Um, So when Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's not talking about some secret thing. He's he's talking about the decrees that God desires for people. Does that make sense? His permissive will, then, is what actually unfolds in history. Um, You know, the fact that there are nations that war against one another and people die and uh, that there's pain and suffering, none of that will be in heaven. And yet, God has permitted it in this part of His plan of salvation. Um, so, does that kind of make sense? Any questions on that? I think I
2: feel that actually. I think that two wills are the first one. If you
4: translate it or they would explain be, it really better, probably. There's the decree of the will of God, the what He decrees and what will happen, no matter what. Like for example, you are saved. Uh, he chose you um, and you will be saved no matter what happens and uh, no one can um, can defer of, of this will like like the verse in psalm says God is in, in heaven He do whatever he wills mm-hmm. right um, so that is the decreed one and then there's the permissive one which is like he will something like for example Or whatever uh, that you would have a good marriage, that you would have, um, that you wouldn't sin, and he helps not to do that, but he lets you decide on that. You see what I mean? Uh, Maybe deciding is not the right word, but you see. I guess you understand what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm sorry. I'm not being like I don't. I don't care so much about which words are used necessarily. I'm just. Yeah, I'm trying to distinguish between what actually happens on earth, which is often very crummy, and what God has declared is good and right. Does that make sense? So we have to say that God has two wills in the sense that uh, God does not um, approve of the sins of man. They are contrary to his will. And yet he has also permitted them to happen because nothing is outside of his, his will, his control. Does that make sense? His authority, I guess I should say.
4: Yeah, it does, it's just like, I was just confused because, because like the revealed will is also the permissive will because he reveals something but he doesn't like decrease it in the sense that he reveals it but he was still sin in it and it's not his will being done. So that's why it's like revealed and permissive is kind of like but as you said, it's
0: not for to Yeah, and there, I mean, there's other words in here. Like some people call this one his secret will because you can't, you know, you don't know what it is. You don't know what God's will for your life tomorrow is. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I don't necessarily want to get caught up in this so much. I, I more just want to say the cruddiness of human life is not outside of God's will. It's part of his will. And yet it's not... Acceptable for us then to say, Well, this is God's will, so like I can just continue in my sin. Um, God's perfect will is that the earth would be full of justice and righteousness and goodness and truth and beauty and peace and love, that all of creation would acknowledge Him as God and would honor Him as such. And then, uh, this sort of permissive will, I'm defining it, is that. Uh, God works all things according to the counsel of his will then everything done in heaven and on earth is in accordance with his will. Okay? Even if it falls short of what he has commanded should take place. So that's why I bring this up is because Paul says that uh, God has predestined believers and that is because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um,
3: so to, to play with is uh in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I wanted to gather you, like you can gather his but you were not willing. Yeah. You talk about that. Like, how does God want? Really wanted if He didn't make it happen? Yeah. You no, know, like if He couldn't make it make it happen. And, and because He makes all things happen in as well, He really didn't want them to come, right? Or I mean, how yeah. Do you, how do you even? even I don't know.
0: Right. And that's why, like, when we begin to talk about these things, we are we are stepping into things that are kind of incomprehensible for us because a person who operates like that, we would say, is divided. But God is not like us. So he can say two things that to us look contradictory that are really paradoxical, and that's why theologians have to come up with some kind of framework like this to say, well, he actually does, in his perfect will, want that Jerusalem would be repentant, and yet he has permitted them or ordained that they would not be. And that's not a divided God. It's just in his nature to be able to do that kind of thing. Is that helpful? Would you add anything else to that? Um, Another one like that is Ezekiel 3311, which is a verse that I really love that says, uh, God says, turn back, turn back, O Israel. Why will you perish in your sins? I take no delight in the destruction of the evil. Or the destruction of those who are evil, right? Um, And that's true. God doesn't delight in it. And yet... God ordained Israel to behave that way so that he might show forth the mercy that would come through his son Christ. Yeah, Jonas.
2: I think one way to uh, to explain it and, and kind of take away the subjectivity is to say that when we say God wants or God's will, we use one term. But in the Greek, uh, there are multiple ones. So there are ones that are, that are talking about, uh, if you track them down, it's always he is going to make that happen. And there are other cases where it's like, this is what God would like us to do. The, the, the term is just different. So it's not like we're saying, well, here is this, here is that. When you track them down, some words refer to a different aspect because the word is different. Sure. And so it's really objective. It's not something we make up.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, Greek is uh, a much more precise language than English. We, we tend to uh, mix words up a lot of times. Um, So, God has willed that man would rebel against him, or it never would have happened. And yet, God is not to blame for Adam and Eve sinning against him. They are responsible for that. They made that choice willingly. Um, God has willed that uh, the world would walk through the trial of sin for his glory, or it wouldn't have happened. And yet, it is not God's will that man would do sin. Does that make sense? Okay. All things, even terrible things, take place according to the will of God. So let's go to Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 10 for a minute. And, I mean, if you uh, want to do a deep dive into kind of God's sovereign will, uh, Isaiah is a great place to do that. Isaiah, like, 40 through the end of the book is uh, powerful for that. But let me just read Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 10. (laughs) God declares, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? So um, there's no other God, meaning that there's no other will that is directing all of human history. There's no one that can oppose this God. um, And it is God's will to form both light and darkness, well-being and calamity. And woe to him who strives against the will of God. Not only will it not work, to try and get your own will done. Um, But actually what you'll find out is that in doing your will in opposition to God, you will end up only serving God's purposes. So does this mean that man is absolved of his actions and that God is to blame for everything that's bad? No, or there would be no reason to pronounce woe. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, right? So, um, this is something to keep in mind. We cannot blame God for our sinful actions, even though we may find in the end they were God's will to accomplish his purposes. And um, verse 6 here says, that people may know that I am the Lord and there is no other. So, people are accountable for what they know. You could look down at verse 22 here as well. God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. So that is his desire for mankind. Um, and yet, Paul just told us that our inheritance only comes through Christ if we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's some heavy stuff, but actually it should be some wonderful encouragement to us in reality. Um, First encouragement to seek to do the perfect will of God. Uh, Don't you want to do God's will? Yes. So it's laid out for us very simply in the Bible. And we're invited to walk in his will. And we're told that we're empowered to do that based on all of the things that are ours through Christ who is in us. Um, and, and it should also be an encouragement to us because then whatever you might be going through, as difficult as it may be, what can you have confidence in? That is God's will. Right? Um, I preach this pretty routinely. I'm sort of like waiting for the, the shoe to drop. Like I'm sort of waiting for God to be like, all right, Grady, you've been preaching it. Now here's your opportunity to walk through it. And I really don't want him to do that. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather just continue my, my pretty cush life. But there may come a day where you have to say to me, Grady, you've been preaching it. And now God is bringing some hardship and difficulty into your life. And so let me speak back to you what you've been teaching, that this too is in accordance with his will. It it is purposed, so that you might trust him more and love him more and be more obedient and more dependent upon him. Anybody have any thoughts on that? On on anything regarding to God's will and his purposes and the encouragement there? I think it is indeed
1: encouraging to know that um, well, he's the creator, and we are the created means. So who are we to tell God, like, what to do? And um, we cannot create our own worlds. <laughs> and so he created it. He told us how it functions. So praise God that we are able to even comprehend a little bit. Yeah, um, amen. So indeed, when those times come, we can
2: rely on a God
0: that is straightforward and honest. Amen. Amen. For some reason, that made me think of this, which isn't in my notes. But in, in Isaiah 45, you get this verse where God says, I make well-being and create calamity. And um, that's a really hard verse, you know, when you're going through something. I mean, probably the most challenging thing that I can imagine at this point in my life is, like, to have one of my kids die, you know, at this age. Um in an effort to absolve God of responsibility, the kind of alternative position to what I'm putting forward says that actually, you know, these things are, are only taking place because of man's will and God doesn't interfere with man's will and, and therefore he's not responsible for it. And I can appreciate the effort there, but what, what then happens to that God who is not responsible for it? Exactly. He's also not in control, right? There's something that is greater than he is. Or, or for some reason, he's decided to limit his power. And uh, I would much rather encounter a God who is so sovereign and so big that he says, I make well-being and I create calamity, than a God who says, yeah, there's some things that are kind of out of my control, but hang in there. It'll get better.
5: Yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting how God makes it come together sometimes. You know, I'm thinking of the uh, uh, the guy at uh, the, the lame guy at, uh, uh, in John 5 at Bethesda, right? Yeah. He's known for 38 years. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He, he didn't just say, I heal you. He asked him, do you want to be healed? Kind of, in a way, putting him in a spot to say, yeah, I, I guess. Right. But but he didn't respond with a yes because he responded with excuses for why he's not. He started blaming everybody else for never taking him down to the pool. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, but there's there's it was, I've, obviously it was Jesus' will to heal him. It was God's will to heal him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in a in a way, probably this guy never thought was ever going to happen. Absolutely. Right. And I think yeah. our lives are like that sometimes. We we go through stuff and it's like, man, this is rough. Yeah. But then we see the blessing when it's over. Yeah
0: totally yeah. and and the other uh, you know ultimate example of this is always the cross right in the cross God brings together well-being and calamity in his own son so that man's calamity can be transformed into well-being right and that word calamity in in the Hebrew does anybody know evil it's actually the word evil uh, I think the ESV preserves this older Kind of tradition and using the word calamity because it's too theologically jarring to just throw that word in there but the hebrew word is i create well-being and i create evil uh so that's that's challenging it that doesn't mean god is guilty of doing evil or that he is evil it just means he's sovereign over it
3: what were you going to say i was going to say what gay was saying reminds me of also the example one um Jesus uh, healed the blind man. And he said, Well, before he even healing, him, he said, You know, who sinned him, him or his parents? He said, N- None of them sinned, but, but that's so my glory, so that God, God's glory could be revealed through him. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it, was his, it was God's will I be blind so that his glory should be revealed through him, yep. son.
0: And, and I think you can use that instance as a microcosm to understand the entire human story, yeah. right? Um, so that God's glory might be displayed.
1: And some people may say, like, in fact, I, I think i heard people, some people say, like, God is a selfish God, like, self-centered. What is everything about his glory? Well, first of all, he's God. We're not. Second of all, like, he went through, like, he understands pain because he himself became human Christ. So wrestle with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that could be said about that. I mean uh in in his glory and in his praise is wrapped up all of man's goodness Mm. right so you can you can accuse him of being selfish but actually he's inviting you to praise him because that is what is good for you i I mentioned that i think in a sermon recently what is good for a thing is always in accordance with his nature what was man made to do praise god so in giving god glory is man's greatest good so there's lots that can be said about that, but yeah, and, and why why would selfish humans accuse God of being selfish? Well, because we project, right?
3: It's impossible to understand because every time you're looking for praise, it really it's really God created you. Right. God is self, you know, self-sustaining. He's worthy of praise. He can never like have a bad like, egotistical trip about it right. because it's all true. Like anytime we do that. It has to go to God because... Yeah. ...only me because God created me. Yeah. Like, any, any praise I get should be defunded. Absolutely. And, and we, can, we
0: can add to that maybe an illustration of, you know, let's say we put together a race and we're going to give a prize to the person who runs the fastest and 10 people run the race and then in the end we give the prize to the slowest person. You would say that's unjust. And for God to allow any praise that belongs to him to go to somebody else would actually be wrong it would be unjust it would be it would be unacceptable
3: so it's not
0: selfish it's just what's right
3: one way to understand like god creating evil is like understanding the same things that we might do that, that god did god does them they're not evil we do them they are because they're not ours and god everything is god's he's the He's the potter, right? He can do what he can trash. If we trash other people's stuff, like, that's wrong. I can trash your stuff. It's not wrong. So when God says he does evil, I think it's more like on the line of, like, it'd be evil for us. He can do what he wants with his question, and it's nothing. He can make a man blind. If I made a man blind, that's totally evil. If God makes a man blind, it's totally Right? He's he's nothing wrong. Nothing evil about it.
0: Yeah, and we run into so many problems. I, I mentioned philosophical theology. We, we actually run into so many problems when we begin there. And we say, this is what we understand. And so let's reason our way up to God to understand him based on this. No, God has to reveal who he is so that we can understand him. And he's not like us. Um, and so when we make assumptions that he is like us, we end up in huge trouble. And even like
1: the idea nowadays there are creators, especially through social media, why not? But in reality, there is no one that can be like, I tell the youth sometimes like, okay, I want to create a bird right now, bird, come to be. Like, nothing will happen. Right. Therefore, I am not am like, not a creator,
3: Right.
1: God is a creator, and whatever we use to, quote unquote, create things, is with the tools that God has given us, even like the ideas or like that our mind works is because God has allowed for our minds to
3: work. Yep, so yep. There's nothing new good. Good, son. yeah yeah,
2: so I think in Isaiah 45, right, the context is God saying um, there are some nations that are going to punish you, and they're going to do this because I have called them to do so. Mm-hmm. But that's God's sovereignly using people with evil intent to accomplish his purposes. Yeah. not God doing evil right. in and of itself. Yes. God cannot do evil. So in, in uh, James 1, it says this. in verse uh, 13, basically the summary is all the good comes from God, all the bad comes from us. And that's not to say that God is the primary reason for evil, it's really from us. So no one undergoing trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. When each person is tempted, when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires, evil desires, then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. So he's basically saying, don't think evil comes from God. It comes from your own heart. And when you do that, eventually you die. Uh, but don't be tempted to say that, uh, you know, God is just the guilty one for the evil in the world. God gives every good gift. Yeah. And uh, and he, he cannot do anything like that because he's just like, there's no darkness in him, there's no shadow, which is the same thing that First John says. In him, there's no darkness. Uh, God is light. First John one five. Yeah. So I think it's uh, totally appropriate to say God uses evil. He uses the cross, and uh, he uh, he uses uh, all the calamities and the evils of the world, but he's not responsible for it. Technically,
0: we could, we could not say it. he created evil. Yeah. He he um, he cannot. What's the what's the right word here? Um, we cannot place upon him blame. But mm-hmm. um, well, can he slay a
3: man and has he? Yes. Well, all apart from man, he doesn't always use man, that's a sword in a man's hand, to somehow escape the idea that it's man that killed him and not me. Sometimes he just says it and people get swallowed up by the earth and something. And so that's not. It's evil from, like, our perspective, but God is not evil. Like, right. and, and no one would ever blame people, but God doesn't always use man to say... To and there is
2: capital punishment
0: in the Old Testament that's not evil. It's just the justice of God. Right? And th- this, this gets tricky, too, and this wasn't exactly the, the direction I intended to go for quite so long, but that's okay. It gets tricky, too, in that... Um, so God cannot do evil, obviously. He's good. And yet, whatever God does is, by definition, good. Right. <laughs> so, uh, that's just something you have to, like, chew on.
3: Because by our definition, what God did is evil in man's economy. Right. So absolutely
0: evil. one of the things that Christians, like, sort of feel for the slavery. need to apologize for is when God says, Israel, go into Canaan and slaughter everybody and take the land. I give you permission to do that. Not, not only permission, I command you to go do that, right? Or commanding Cyrus to come and, you know, put Jerusalem under siege. Those kinds of things. And, uh, yeah, from our perspective, it looks like evil. God cannot do evil. He cannot. But we also say whatever he does is good. Um, and, and you're right. He doesn't tempt people. Like, God didn't put the the tree in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve that's what James tells us that's the revelation from God's word Adam and Eve were tempted because of their own desires that came from within them um, so these are, these are complex things that just require quite a bit of humility and, and also just gentleness we want to be gentle with these things and um, have great confidence that God is good and how do we, how do we know that How do we know that God is good? Like, what is the fundamental place where God has displayed his goodness? On the cross. It's the cross, right? Like, if you ever have any doubt, look to the cross. The perfect son of God shed his blood for a wretch like you to prove that our God is good.
3: What's fascinating to think about is if we had a creator that was nasty and didn't love, we would live in his world and we would be we would have to serve that creator but we have a creator that is not like that it has got like yeah
0: yeah isn't it amazing that God actually permits people to live on this earth for like 80 or 90 years doing their will in his kingdom like that is amazing right that 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 scripture can tell us that God makes it rain on the just and the unjust alike. We tend to think like, well, who is this God who thinks that he can just tell me how to live my life? No, who are you that you think in his creation, you can do your will in opposition to his will? What hubris. Okay, we'll move on. That was kind of fun. Thanks. Uh, Picking up in verse 12. So it says, In him we've obtained, this is verse 11, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, so right here Paul's using a first person plural pronoun, we. So, Paul is obviously speaking autobiographically, or he would use the second person pronoun, you, um, and he does that in verse 13. So, as I was reading this again this week, I was reminded of another Arminian argument that I've heard from this passage, is that actually Paul is not talking about predestination for any anybody else. He's only referring to his own predestination because of the word we here, and then he switches in verse uh, 13 when he says in him you also Um, but I'm not going to go back down that road Uh, I think that Paul has in mind here throughout all of this himself and the church and all believers and those in Ephesus Um, I don't think he's making some profound statement by switching the uh, first person or second person pronouns Um, So Paul is saying here in verse 13 that they all share in the same Holy Spirit regardless of their status within the family of Christ and he doesn't in here anywhere boast about his particular status as an early adopter as if he deserves some kind of special credit for coming to Jesus before other people did. in the theology of Paul, where does all of the praise and glory go? Verse 12. Right? To him. To, to God. To Christ. Um, po- concerning the church, Paul and even the people in Ephesus are really first generation, right? They, they are the early adopters. Um, But they're early adopters for what purpose? So that Christ might be glorified in them. And this connects back to the will of God. Why is Paul and those believers in Ephesus, why are they included in the family of Christ at all? Because it's the will of God, right? So then verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul's reminding the Ephesians that they share positionally in the exact same benefits that he shares in. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And that's by virtue of the work that Christ himself has accomplished, not any merit in them. Um, Okay, man, I'm not going to get through all of my notes here. Uh, That's okay, though. So... Uh, Paul talks about when you heard the word of truth. So the word is truth, right? Do we actually believe that? Man, I I was having a conversation with somebody last week. And they kept using this phrase that is really psychological. And I found myself thinking... This is, uh, this is not a helpful phrase. This is not a biblical concept that's being used here by this person who professes faith in Christ. And it wasn't appropriate right then because of the conversation, what we were talking about, for me to interrupt and just be like, you keep saying that, but I don't see a biblical uh, foundation for what you're saying. Can you show me where... You get this from the Bible. And I know they, would have been, they wouldn't have been able to say, well, here, right? We would have had to have a conversation about how this is a psychological thing. And what I'm getting at is, do we really believe as Christians that the word is truth? I'm not suggesting that there aren't other ways to reach truth, right? But the, the truth that comes from God's word is the supreme and ultimate truth. Does that make sense? And do we actually live that way, right? I mean, Jonas, you pointed out every good and perfect gift comes from God. So does that influence the way we think about things, right? Or are we prone to think, no, God's kind of mean sometimes because look at how hard my life is. Or good and perfect gifts come from the government who likes to give me nice things, right? Like, no, no, no. This needs to be the thing that leads us in truth. Okay. And, and I would actually add to this, and this may be a little controversial as well, that the word is not an end in itself. The word is the means through which we come to know God. So this book is absolutely essential. It is precious to us. But this book is not God. It is the declaration of God, but it's meant to lead us to the one who declares it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I in no way want to be accused of diminishing the word. I'm actually elevating it by saying it is through this that we come to see the author. And that's that's the purpose. Um, because, Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, what was the result? You believed in him, that's the goal, okay. Um, this word "belief" though is a frustrating one for me in our current world because what when when people say, "Yeah, I believe in Jesus," what do they usually mean? Yeah, he exists. Yeah, he exists, right? That's about all. Yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. Like I mentally agree to the statement of fact that Jesus was a person. Um, But is that what Paul has in mind here? Is that what the New Testament is teaching? Like that you should just agree that Jesus lived. Or even that he died and rose from the dead.
5: Isn't this just Paul explaining what, what, what the effectual gospel call is what do you mean tease that out well the believing comes from the hearing the hearings comes from the gospel it says it, it, he said first he said uh, uh, when you heard the word of truth and he and i think he defines it in the next sentence the gospel of your salvation yeah right yeah so the word of truth is the gospel of salvation when you heard that, you believed, yeah. Which was God's desired effectual call to faith,
0: yeah.
1: From the support to watch, like to is not only my all you have in the view of faith is like I believe with my act, like with my
0: actions, yeah. And that's kind of the direction that I was I was trying to go here. I think that, um, and maybe this isn't you know, fundamental to what Paul is, is getting at here. But it's an issue that I think is of relevance to us because the gospel is typically presented as kind of like, agree to this fact. Jesus was the son of God. He died and rose from the dead. And then you get to be in heaven, right? But belief in the New Testament is actually trust, right? Mm-hmm. Obedience. And I would say obedience and trust are essentially the same thing. If you trust that the way of Jesus is the best way, then you will obey the commands that he gives you, right? And um, I just think there's no place for this idea of the gospel as this thing that you believe. It is a way of living that proves you trust the one who is inviting you. Um Man, I think we're gonna have to just stop there. And I'm, I'm sorry. Um, maybe, maybe, the, yeah.
2: I just wanna share something about predestination in 30
0: seconds. Sure. So it's like
2: so beautiful, right? So the text says, God predestines all things after the council of his will, his plan, everything is predestined. And so then people say, well, that's bad. Well, no, it's not bad, look, it's he's saying, you are predestined so you will be blameless verse 5 before him so if god was not in control how is that going to end well you tell me if (laughs) if he's not in control how can he say in the end it's it's all panning out okay if satan is in control if man is in control well it's just like we have no idea yeah but god says i'm in control and i just did everything and in the end you'll be before me and that's the good news Like i'm saved because he destined all my days Amen. Psalm 139, before I was born, all the days were destined. And even in, in Acts uh, 13.48, it says, All who are appointed or destined for
0: eternal life, believe. So that's good news. Amen. That's good news. Amen. And I'm, I'm actually going to take the last word, if that's okay. I'll, I'll just tack on to that. Uh, the end of verse, uh, f- or just verse 14 here that we have the Holy Spirit that's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And uh, if, if you are a believer, then it's sort of like buying a house. The documents have been signed. The property belongs to you. The waiting period before you get the keys, that's what you're in the middle of right now. That was a terrible illustration. The point is, <laughs> the point is that the acquiring the possession of our eternal life is already accomplished by Christ. And therefore, we have great hope uh, to the praise of his glory as we go through the challenges that we we experience in this life. All right, that was not articulate, but let me just pray and we'll be done. God, we thank you for this guarantee that we have in your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the... Um, eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ we thank you that all of this is to the praise of your glory Um, we thank you that it's in accordance with your will that we are co-heirs with Christ and that we have been redeemed Um, we thank you that we are in Christ and Christ is in us and I pray that we would live in a way that uh, proves that that's true in Christ's name Amen. amen